Chapter 7 of With the Anzacs in Cairo by Guy Thornton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adam Bielka. Chapter 7 What Should Be Done? Description of conditions so deplorable naturally leads to suggestions towards remedying them. The following points are therefore put forward for consideration by all who feel deeply the need that something should be done. 1. All those districts that, at present, are, to all intents and purposes, set aside for licensed vice, should be cleansed. All licensed women should be deported from the country. This is not only possible, since it has been done under similar conditions elsewhere, but eminently reasonable. The only way to cure a cancer is to excise it. Failing this, should the authorities considered absolutely essential to the well-being, health, and happiness of the city that such a parade of vice should continue to exist, then let them, too, remove these women to a more remote part of the city. They at present reside where they can ply their unholy trade to the highest possible advantage. 3. In case the authorities do not deport them or remove them from their present favorite strategical position, then surely what they did at Alexandria is practicable in Cairo, videlicet, to proclaim a district out of bounds to troops and enforce the prohibition. 4. Deliberate, determined, and persistent efforts should be made to prohibit solicitation by word or act on part of either women or touts. This has been done to great advantage in many parts of the colonies, and there is no reason on earth why a strong government could not do it here. In New Zealand, for example, a case of solicitation is marvelously rare. Of course, objections will be raised. It is worthwhile stating some of the stock difficulties in order to meet them at once with adequate answers. First, it is impossible to deport these women. They must live somewhere. The latter I grant. I have no objection to their living, but a great objection to the way they make their living. If they persist in pursuing their present trade, they should go. If it is impossible to deport them, how then did the authorities cleanse other eastern cities, which had as unsavory a reputation as that which now obtains in Cairo? Let us look at the question from another point of view. The authorities say, by their actions, It is impossible to cleanse Cairo. But is it impossible? It only requires the present state of affairs to continue, to ensure thousands of British troops being poisoned by a foul disease, and to disseminate, as they no doubt will, that disease in hundreds of places, where it is, at present, practically non-existent. Second, it would cost too much to remove these women to a more remote position in the city. Let us consider what it costs the British nation if one Australian or New Zealander contracts this disease in its worst form. First, it means that when every man is needed for the defense of the empire, one man is lost. Far better for him and his had he died. Secondly, that one man has cost in equipment, training, proportional cost in military administration, transport, food, upkeep, etc., etc., at least £250. Multiply that sum by many hundreds and perhaps thousands, and the sum total will be, I fear, appalling. At present, 
the existence of these licensed and unlicensed women is a menace to the safety of the empire. They have lost the British army in actual fighting power, I leave to the proper authorities to say how many, regiments. That body of men, efficient, might win a battle that would decide a campaign, which might end gloriously the whole war. Useless, they are not only a terrible drag, but entail an enormous, unnecessary expenditure. What does the toleration of these women cost parents in shame and sorrow over the fall of promising sons? Disgrace, disease, and death have befallen many men who under normal temptations would have remained straight. But under the indescribably abnormal temptations of the Ezbekaya and fish market districts have succumbed. Third, declaring the districts out of bounds is useless. It could not be enforced. This has been done in Alexandria. Discipline is useless if it cannot be enforced. Extend the powers of the pickets. Get picked men to form a permanent picket. And instead of using them, as is done only to search these houses at certain hour for drunks and outlates, let them prevent these men from entering the districts. The fence is of more use at the top of the cliff than the ambulance at the bottom. Fourth, with the native police, it is impossible to prevent solicitation. Another plea made to me by a highly placed Egyptian official, an Englishman. Perhaps so. I'm inclined to believe it, since with my own eyes I have seen nude European and native women within two yards of a laughing native policeman indulge in indescribably vile and filthy contortions in the open street and in the full light of day. But let a dozen honest British policemen report each case they see and let the magistrate severely punish these women, and they would cease to be importune. Remember, the greatest danger is from the hundreds of European women, for it is a fact that the evil native women of Cairo do not make their main living from soldiers, but from natives, and the same holds true, to a lesser extent, of the European women. As I have already stated, in November 1915, the police commenced a crusade against the touts. Many were caught and flogged. No mercy should have been shown to these vile parasites. Flogging is not enough. Flogging, coupled with hard labor for a long period, might, and I believe would, prove efficacious. The government have, in several cases, to my knowledge, prohibited certain women of the undesirable class from landing in Egypt, and have prosecuted and punished agents of this infamous white slave traffic. Under the present martial law, this power could be exercised in the wholesale deportation of these women to the lands from which they came. Failing that, it would be infinitely cheaper to isolate them than to license them to be a menace to the health of thousands of British troops in Egypt. Remember that. 1. In these pages, I have written only about Cairo. Of Alexandria, I have little personal knowledge. 2. Unless this deplorable condition of affairs in Egypt is once and for all remedied, for generations to come, thousands upon thousands of British troops will, whilst on garrison duty, be subjected to the same temptations as obtain now. The past is irremediable. The present is our opportunity. Let us say, this evil must go, and posterity will benefit, for their good, for the honor of our beloved empire, for the sake of God and good, let us do right. Note to above. Except these few lines, nearly every word of this small book was penned in Egypt, when I was partially recovering from enteritis and colitis.
Since my arrival in England, I have seen for the first time, and have been appalled by, the moral condition of London, and nearly all the large towns in Great Britain. Not one, but scores of our colonial soldiers have remarked to me that the immorality so openly displayed in certain parts of London, whilst not as open and hideous as in Egypt, is simply awful, and it is certain that their old-time reverence for the homeland has received a terrible shock. I have sought, with some success, to do for our men in London what I did in Cairo, and have been unspeakably surprised at the criminal negligence evinced by the authorities. An Australian soldier said to me, It looks to me as if they were the women who paid the police and not the government. They, the police, are either blind to the open solicitation or paid not to try to stop it. Are we at war or are we playing at war? One is almost inclined to think the latter, from the fact that in this present time of crisis, these women are permitted, is it going too far to say encouraged, to ply their hideous trade and to render useless thousands and thousands of our soldiers by infecting them with a foul disease. Why should not each woman who is known, and the police should know, to earn her living by either in whole or in part by these means be sent to a special munitions work, there to help to end the war, instead of doing, as at present, more harm to our forces than the greatest defeat would entail? We believe in the liberty of the subject, but not a liberty that means license to prey upon our gallant men. We are fighting for freedom, and if we are going to win, we must first cope with this terribly insidious vice that is a cancer, corrupting the whole nation. I know there are some who will say, You can't make men virtuous by act of parliament. If that is the case, why prohibit theft, murder, arson, etc.? One thing is certain, that our soldiers, British and colonial, deserve the government's best help in removing from our midst the fearful temptations of the London streets. It has been done elsewhere. It can be done here. Banish drink, and with it, or very soon after it, prostitution will all but disappear. Drink, as every doctor of note will readily admit, one, causes lack of self-control, two, diminishes the power of discerning right from wrong, i.e. deadens conscience, three, quickens those passions of which I have been speaking. Sir Victor Horsley said to me in Alexandria that nine out of ten of the men who are to be found in the venereal barracks are there as the result of drink. From my own personal experience in Egypt, I believe he underestimated rather than overestimated the percentage. Is England to be the last great country to banish from its midst this drink traffic that seemingly has its tentacles round government, church, and society? This traffic cannot be mended. It must be ended. To win this war, it should be ended now. End of chapter 7